0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 571 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 29th of August 2021 as I record this and I can't believe it's September (laughs) this week, like how fast has this year gone by, it's crazy. Anyway, in today's show, I'm talking to New Zealander Edwin McRae about narrative design in the gaming industry. And even if you're not into gaming, I'm personally not a gamer myself, it's fascinating to hear how storytelling works in a more interactive environment. And we also talk about how this will become more important as we move towards Web 3.0, the experience economy, and different ways of storytelling in the metaverse. And you can listen to recent episode 568, for more on that. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news and interesting things, Seth Godin had an interesting article on his blog this week titled The Inevitable Decline of Fully Open Platforms. And uh, he says, quote, Too much curation stifles creativity, opposing viewpoints and useful conversation. But no curation inevitably turns a platform over to quacks, denialists, scammers and trolls. Over time, the value of a uniform, a brand or a platform is defined by the worst people who wear it or use it. Trust and attention are in a long dance, but only trust wins in the long run. And I, I read this article. It was actually about Substack and the fact that Stubs, Substack <laughs> has started to attract scammers. But the same could be said of Amazon or ACX or Facebook or any of these platforms that we use that is essentially free to use and therefore <laughs> attracts people who don't use it in an ethical way. Now, we all benefit from open platforms. The indie movement benefits from open platforms. There are no gatekeepers as such. We can write and publish what we want. But that also allows for scammers, plagiarists, pirates, and let's face it, the tsunami of crap, (laughs) which is what people have accused self-publishing of for maybe at least 12 years I, since I heard that phrase the first time and it, it does keep coming back. <laughs> now, in the early days of indie, the phrase was the new gatekeepers are the readers and reviews were what helped pick out people who, who were doing well, for example. But people buy reviews and they are notoriously difficult to police. So you know what I'm going to say, right? This is my hobby horse. As Seth says, only trust wins in the long run. And this is something that I've... I try and focus on and I think it's super important. Your readers need to trust you to deliver quality books. And once you earn that trust, they will buy from you regardless of the platform. And I think this is what's changed during the pandemic. And those of us who sell direct from our own websites and that people who've been doing special projects and selling on other platforms, essentially, you can have your own platform. But if and if people trust you, they will buy from you. And if they don't, then they probably won't. And what is changing is the trust in some of the platforms, but trust in authors remains. Now, there are authors I'm sure that you buy the latest book from, regardless because you trust that author to deliver a good book. And for most of us, that's only a handful of people. But that's amazing. And those people have earned our trust over time. Yeah, so I think that is super important. I always, Seth's, idea that perhaps the inevitable decline of fully open platforms means that there will be more controls in place in the future. And I I think that a lot of that will probably be determined by AI and algorithms and stuff. But we do know of some Uh, websites and platforms where there is trust or sort of rating given to an established author who delivers files in the right format and stuff like that. And that results in faster approval of new files and you're less likely to be marked as a a scammer, for example. Whereas a new author might receive more vetting. And that is actually the kind of thing we want, but not too much. (laughs) It's like you still have to allow for new voices. But equally, we do want some control and trust. So for me, and as you know, I want everyone to be able to write the books they want, and for readers to find books from lots of different people. But from our perspective, we need to focus on building trust with readers, as well as with the platforms and the vendors and with each other and as ever foster our direct relationships through email through direct sales. So we won't be dependent on the platforms if and when they change the rules because of these various things. So as ever, it's about and and this is where I think it is difficult if you're trying to protect your identity. I think that this sort of trust in being human is super important. You can easily prove that I'm a real person (laughs) because of the amount I have on the internet. But if you're using a pen name, that can be quite difficult. So I absolutely acknowledge the challenges, but I think the trust that we develop with our readers is the most important thing. Also this week, a couple of articles about print publishing on the Alliance of Independent Authors blog, an opinion piece or interview with UK crime author Adam Croft about problems he's been having with Ingram Sparks distribution through Amazon. And delays on pre-orders, and why Adam has shifted to doing print runs through Clays here in the UK, and then essentially distributing and bypassing Amazon and Ingram. <laughs> he says sales are better because availability is better, and also that costs mean you don't have to do big print runs. Even with fifty books, he thinks it's still worth it. I'll link to the the show notes, and I know some people have sent me this from Adam's Facebook group and things like this. So I have a couple of thoughts to add. The biggest indie authors have pursued this type of model of doing print runs. A.G. Riddle, Jerry Riddle, I remember him doing this years ago. He had a picture and probably presumably still is doing this. I remember pictures of his uh, warehouses <laughs> with stacks of books wrapped all in plastic that he was shipping around. And... um LJ Ross does it here in the UK. And of course, Adam is a very successful author. And he does say that his sales are well over 90% UK based. So if you have the time, energy and money to invest in setting up distribution in a primary market, and I think that's really important, 90% UK based means that Adam can focus on the UK. That's certainly not true of me. Most of my audience, for example, is the US. So it just, I just, yeah, completely different market. And this is a model that you really should only focus on in your primary market, I think. It's very difficult to do it everywhere. If you have the time, energy and money to invest in setting up the distribution, then yes, it can be worth it. But that is not the situation for most indie authors. It's certainly not for me. And I don't know if that's something I will ever want to do as a main business model, Um So the Alliance of Independent Authors has another article that goes alongside Adam's interview with the different points to consider. If you're hearing these things and thinking, well, you know, I should just do that. Well, there's a few things to consider. One is, what is your business model as an author? If you want to focus on print distribution in specific territories, then of course you can do this type of model. And probably if you put in a lot of effort up front to get all the designs done and the costing and figure out the distribution, you'll have a process that will work in the future. You could have higher production quality. There are many possible positives of that model, as Adam discusses. But personally, (laughs) you definitely need a business plan for this. You have to have sorted out your distribution you need an audience (laughs) absolutely and you need a budget because of course you're going to pay up front now I definitely got bitten by this when I started out I remember putting several thousand books into a landfill because printing is easy like printing books is easy you get some design files you give them to a printer and they print some books It's the selling books, the distribution. These things are difficult (laughs) and that hasn't changed. Selling books remains as hard as ever. And Adam, for example, LJ Ross, Jerry Riddle, these are very successful fiction authors who are managing their print models around getting their books out and doing all the marketing and stuff like that. Plus, you also have to pay up front to print those books. So cash flow is very different. Remember, with print on demand, Yes, you need the design and setup files, but you don't pay anything, essentially. It it is free. And then the customer pays for the printing and you get the profit. And I personally, I love that model. Now, you can partner with companies for print-only deals. And again, some of the biggest indie authors have deals like that. Hugh Howey is quoted in that Alliance of Independent Authors article. Mark Dawson here in the UK has a print partnership with a publisher, there's lots of options personally I am still more than happy with print on demand I've never had any significant issues now would I make more money if I did this kind of distribution thing I don't know I mean it's possible particularly for my non-fiction perhaps but I really focus on global distribution with print on demand and that's what I love doing I also love no hassle <laughs> print on demand. is just no hassle. I just like getting paid. It is just me in this business now. It's just me running this. I like to have also a location independent business. So essentially, you have to decide what you want. Now, I am intending to do a special print run, as I talked about with John Bond from White Fox on a recent show. When I do maybe the shadow book, certainly my memoir, my travel memoir, I'll do a special print run for those people who are interested in buying a special print edition, but I, I just don't think I could ever see myself doing what Adam's doing or LJ Ross. It's just a very, very different business model. So only you can decide what you want to do. And in fact, when you hear different opinions from different people, including myself, <laughs> whatever I say, you need to take a step back and consider what applies to you. For example, a new author with no established brand, no audience, no money from sales of other books to spend on print runs. You'd be crazy if you tried to do a print run and instead of doing print on demand. I mean, that's the mistake I made and I wouldn't recommend it. But if you have the budget, a business plan for distribution, an audience and email lists, the time to spend on setting it all up, then of course it's worth looking into. Remember, there is no one size fits all when it comes to indie. Indie authors are running different kinds of publishing businesses with different definitions of success. For example, again that that business model that Adam's got there is completely different to someone who writes a book a month and publishes ebooks within KU. That's a completely different business model again. So you have to choose what you want to do with your time and your definition of success and choose your own path it is a choose your own adventure (laughs) the indie author way and you have to find you listen to all these different people decide what you want for your life and then follow that path or make your own path that's what it's all about so, my personal update I am still working towards the end of the first draft with Tomb of Relics. Now I know it is a novella, although it's actually going to be a long novella. It's going to be almost a novel, but just not quite. I mean, who knows? I'm still writing it. But I've also been recording a video as I write with PseudoWrite, how I use PseudoWrite, this AI tool I did an interview with Armit earlier this year. And I Also exploring how I write with the AI side of things, which will become part of my NFT package. More to come on that once I figure it all out. I feel like the time is ticking away this year and I've got so much more I need to do. I'm also working on books and travel personal episode about London and also had even started writing bits and bobs for my pilgrimage book, which is hilarious. I just have way too many open books at the moment, open loops with all my books. Uh, also went out this week is a discussion about Canterbury, which inspired Tomb of Relics, the, the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury, over, what, 9, 850 years ago, whatever it is. Um, check out A History of England Written in Stone, on my Books and Travel podcast as mystery author Anna Saburn-Lane and I discuss what we love about the cathedral and the area. Yeah, the murder of Beckett inspired both of us, but it's interesting. I read Anna's book, and it's always difficult when you're writing a book with the same inspiration, but it's a classic example of different things inspiring different stories. Because if you said, Oh, oh, yes, well, both J.F. Penn and Anna Saban Lane have written books inspired by Beckett, as well as tons of other people, obviously, you would not think it. Because I read Anna's book, and mine is so completely different. It's, uh, That's why as authors, we can pick the same, you know, we can give the same writing prompt to five authors, 100 authors, and everyone will write something different. Such is the creative process. I also went to a practical workshop on Friday. I went to Bristol, which was was exciting. And I made letterpress art, which is I'm thinking about in terms of my NFTs again, the sort of visual art side, and also in terms of my more personal books in the future, doing some because letterpress printing is got a very different tactile feel to it. So, you know, maybe I do a limited print run with a a sort of ex-libris letterpress Print that I get commissioned, that type of thing. So I'm just really thinking about different beautiful physical print products that I want to do in my future. (laughs) As digital becomes more ubiquitous and streaming and micropayments just grow, we need to build this limited edition side of things, beautiful physical objects and in-person experiences, this experience economy I talked about, which may be virtual reality, for example, and also the NFTs, the uh, limited edition digital products, for example. So yeah, I I was starting to organise an in-person workshop in New Zealand for, uh, we're hopefully, fingers crossed, going for the southern, southern summer, northern winter. Uh, Jonathan's mum is in Auckland, so we're going there. But New Zealand just went into lockdown, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how that will work out. Uh, we may leave here and go into lockdown in New Zealand or we will see. I mean the pandemic continues to disrupt our plans and that's part of why all this digital and virtual stuff will continue to accelerate because let's face it we all thought 2021 (laughs) it would all be over but it's not. So yeah you can see some of my letterpress art on Instagram at jfpenauthor or on Facebook at jfpenauthor and I made two prints a small print of this two shall pass, which is my pandemic mantra and also my recovering from COVID mantra. Some days I still can't do anything at all. It's one of the, it's not long COVID. Someone asked me that. No, the normal COVID or the one, the mild COVID Delta variant uh, is about three months. It's it's a two weeks of the hardcore and then about three months of recovery. So yeah, some days I'm I can do anything. And then some days, I can't (laughs) it really is it's about that Uh, I also made a poster of measure your life by what you create which I'm going to frame and put on my wall which still drives me to be honest that that's why I left my day job because I just I was measuring I couldn't measure anything I'd done in my life really just by time but to measure my life by the things I create the books the podcast for example It drives me so and especially as every day at the moment I have to choose what I have energy to actually do and it's never social media it's never email it's it's a books writing books reading books for my research and podcasting that's what I pretty much choose to do and yeah it's a good it's a good thing to remember so thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Stephen left a comment on the blog. Your idea as a discovery writer is novel to me. I like it very much. Thank you for the interview with David, David Christinger. He came across very charming and personable. I liked his style of resolving writing issues and I learned a lot from this interview. Thank you, Stephen. Donna Harper says that she agrees with the psychic weight loss idea of writing. She said, spot on. I find writing scenes for my memoir on my traumatic past is very cathartic. And I do feel lighter in spirit afterwards. And then thank you for some pictures. Ranjani writer says, listening to the podcast from Singapore on a rainy afternoon. Oh, I'd love to go to Singapore right now just or anywhere to be honest I'd be happy just to go across the cross the pond <laughs> to France or something Ah, oh, looking forward to traveling again and also Dr. Jimmy Aaron Kepler said listening while on holiday in Marfa Texas USA I still write mornings at the local coffee shop named Frama at Tumbleweed Laundromat that's brilliant thank you for those pictures and in fact those pictures uh, from Jimmy were in the gorgeous letterpress I think Uh, so yeah I find the sort of word art really fascinating so you can tweet me at the creative pen you can leave a comment on the show you can always email me joanna at the creative com. let me know what you think of the podcast and any comments oh and send me pictures from where you are (laughs) so we can all virtually travel So today's show is sponsored by Readsie, the marketplace for vetted professional freelancers who can help you with your indie author career. They have editors, cover designers, book designers, formatters, as well as people who can help with your website, your marketing and advertising, as well as translators, if you're getting into that. I've used Readsie to find experts to help with my advertising because that is my weak point um, I still have a Reedsy expert doing my Amazon ads and I've also used people to do Facebook ads for both fiction and non-fiction if you want to use Reedsy, you outline your project check out freelancers and receive quotes then agree a timeline and a contract and start work I particularly love that Reedsy vets the freelancers so you can be confident in the quality of the work but also payments and emails go through the Reedsy marketplace so it's all transparent so if you have a problem with a freelancer they can help sort it out. They also have free courses that can help you with everything from craft to self-publishing to marketing and they have free formatting tools, lists of book bloggers to get reviews and much more. Check it out through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash Readsie, R-E-E-D-S-Y, thecreativepen.com forward slash Readsie. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And uh, I did the Q&A recently. I can't remember. The time is just flying by. I think it was last week and answered lots of quite personal things actually this week about mindset and uh, validation and things like that. So if you support the show for even just a dollar or a pound or a GBP or a, a pound, GBP, or a Canadian dollar. Or a month or a euro, you will get the extra Q&A, audio um, and all the backlist too. Thanks to new patrons, Maggie Pope, Dan and Shannon Brown. And to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You guys are amazing. You can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen with a double N. Right, let's get into the interview. Edwin McRae is a freelance narrative designer for the games industry. He's also a game design teacher and writer of nonfiction for authors, including narrative design for writers. Welcome, Edwin.
1: Kia ora, Joanna, and uh, tēnā koutou to your audience. It's really cool to be here.
0: You should probably just explain that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just said um, basically hello and hello everyone in Māori.
0: So, because you're in New Zealand, right? <laughs>
1: Exactly, because I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> just, so, um, we...
0: just so everybody knows, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's quite nice. A lot, um, a lot of people here. We try to use Te Reo, which is Te Reo Māori, in everyday, you know, conversation as much as possible these days. So we're all gradually becoming bilingual.
0: Oh well, there we go. Interesting. Tell us a bit more about how you got into writing and what your job actually is. Like, what what is narrative design?
1: Well, um, I'll start with the the second part of that question, like to sort of discuss where I've got to. So narrative design is effectively the design of story elements that then go into video games. I steer away from the kind of general term of writing for video games because too often uh, within the industry, the, the games industry, writing kind of gets siloed into things like uh, dialogue and flavor text and the, the sort of um, what would you call it player the player facing material that you would see in a, a video game whereas narrative design goes a lot it's a lot more behind the scenes than that creating the kind of story experience for a video game which I'm happy to elaborate on more what a what a story experience for a video game is but I got into it via um, I started out uh Writing a novel, pitched that around, almost got picked up by Collins at one point, but to no avail. Uh, and then shifted to doing theatre for a while and then studied screenwriting for film. And then on that course, which is uh, at Victoria University in Wellington, I managed to get a, a work placement on uh, New Zealand's soap opera, Shortland Street. So I ended up as a storyliner and scriptwriter there for four years, which taught me a lot about, uh, I guess, churning out a lot of story and the the best practices for for that kind of fast paced storytelling. And then I I I guess I got to the end of my tenure with writing for soap opera. I wanted to do other things and then um, started to hang out with some game developers in Auckland at the time at a game developers meetup met the guys at Grinding Gear Games who make the game Path of Exile. They Facebook messaged me one day and said, hey, do you want to try writing um, some dialogue for us? And then kind of the, the rest is history, I guess.
0: No, it's so interesting. We'll we'll get into the different, well, you've done lots of different types of writing, obviously. But I I wonder if you you would also maybe start by giving us more of an overview of the gaming industry, because I I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions. I mean, I'm 46 and a lot of the gaming I know, I guess, would have been the really old games that were around like 20 (laughs) years ago when I watched my brother play play things. But gaming is such a huge industry now, compared to the author industry, but it's also part of entertainment we're all part of that so why is gaming so important in the entertainment industry and give us a bit of an overview
1: well it's certainly become a large industry so it has eclipsed you know cinema as an industry so i think i was uh, looking a few things up i think cinema is around 110 billion games around 150 billion like as in worth as an in industry internationally would you compare that to Books, I mean, publishing still sits around as over 200 billion, but of that, books I think are around the 120 billion mark. So I would, I would see sort of uh, games as a platform being as large as the books industry pretty much at the moment. So it's sort of, it's certainly a significant thing out there. And, uh, but interestingly, your average gamer I was looking at is apparently, I think, 34 years old, has children and owns a house. So it's not the, I guess, the teenage stereotype that that often, I guess, is assumed with, with video gaming. And looking at various stats, it ranges, for instance, in Australia. 80% of gamers are over 18 in the US, uh, 70% are over 18. So it's actually, it's quite a, a mature audience and perhaps more mature than than people might assume.
0: And what about uh, the gender split? Because there used to be this sort of thing that it was mostly guys, but from what I've read now, a lot of women are gaming, a lot of women getting into game design and, and things. And also there are educational games. It's not just shooting, is it?
1: Oh, absolutely! The the curious things thing with games—it's like almost like referring to a game is the same as referring to a book. As a, a, a book can be anything from a thriller to a dad's joke book, it could be horror to a kid's picture book. As it's the same range with games. It can be everything from yes, your Grand Theft Autos um, and and your and your Call of Duty shooters, but right right to for instance, there's a company here in Dunedin, Runaway Play that makes um, effectively nature simulation games and games about cat cafes and games about uh, dog refuge centers. So there's a full range within the type of games that are out there. There's really something for everyone.
0: And then just before we get into some more question about the narrative, what kind of devices are we using now? Like there are obviously the high end games where you need whole consoles and things. But then a lot of people, you know, you see people playing games on their mobile phone.
1: Mm, Exactly. And actually, and just I've realized I I missed the gender question is that especially with mobile phone, the gender split is 50-50 in many countries, in fact, in most countries. So, yeah, there is no kind of bias either way with gaming. And I think with mobile especially, the the female audience is, is significantly larger, sort of 60, almost to 70%.
0: I find it fascinating, and I definitely think things will change. As you mentioned, there people uh, the the average in inverted commas being thirty four with children in a house. We're we're talking about people with money now, and some of these games. I guess I would say they they don't sound expensive. You know, you might pay what is it like seventy dollars or something Mm. for one of these really premium games but then the amount of hours you can play that it actually seems quite good value so is that how how these things I mean there's obviously the cheap ones on the mobile isn't there but the ones Mm. I hear people talk about are these sort of quite immersive ones
1: yeah the other ones that get the most press is the really big ones Cyberpunk 2077 or Witcher 3 or Skyrim big big sort of games that you can explore for up to Oh gosh, 100 hours, 200 hours, 300 hours for some. But yeah, and those are your larger titles that cost between, say, 50 to $100, $120. But then you'll get, so especially in the indie game dev scene, you'll get games that are anywhere from $2 to $20. And even in those, you'll tend to have a good 10 to 20 hours of gameplay in those. Uh, and, they again, it can be on mobile, it can be on PC, it can be on console. So just as there's a, a range, like, uh, in size, like, was it Jordan's... Uh,
0: uh, Wheel of Time.
1: <laughs> Wheel of Time, thank you. You know, there's that epic, <laughs> massive series that you can explore. There are short stories and novellas in the game scene as well. So, mm. yeah, again, it's a full range of experience on offer.
0: That is a a really great overview. And as you said, a full range of experience. And I think this experience idea and this idea of entertainment, I think sometimes we forget that as authors, we get into the book we're doing and we forget that out there people want entertainment, education, inspiration. And sometimes it doesn't matter what medium they get it from. And so I I often feel that it's like it's just a very different experience. So let's talk about writing then. So how does writing for these games differ from writing a linear book and obviously we can't talk about every different type but it it feels like it's a very different thing writing for an experience than it is for a sort of linear uh, book.
1: It absolutely is because I've written novels myself and the experience I'd liken it to is um, that it's almost like you're designing a sideshow ride like if you were going to do a like a horror-themed train ride for a sideshow. That would be closer to what, say, a narrative designer does. So you're not necessarily writing a plot for the people to sit in the train and experience. It's more like you're thinking about what is the overall emotion I want them to experience. And in that case, it might be um, fear, shock, things like that. And then it's thinking about how can I create a cohesive world that these people can ride through and get a sense that everything fits together on this horror train, all the, all the pieces work together to create an overall experience. And in that there are elements of story, there will be characters, there will be settings, there will be little bits of dialogue, there will be images and, and all sorts of elements that go into that. But then the narrative designer's job is more of that thinking of how do all these different pieces fit together? And with the, I guess I realise with the train example, that's actually, that's still linear. So in many respects, that's still quite similar to, say, writing a novel, like you're doing all of those things with writing a novel as well. You're thinking about setting thing, character, um, how you're going to describe the environment that people are, are, the characters are moving through, how do you describe the action, all of those elements. But I guess the tricky thing is then when the train starts to branch off into 10 possibilities, when the um, players get to a junction and go, okay, I've got 10 options here and somebody has to write each of those 10 options and what's going to happen in, in those um, options. I guess that's where it starts to get tricky and much more game-like.
0: Yeah. And that's what fascinates me because I did uh, the masterclass with James Patterson. Have you have you seen that?
1: I, I've... I've heard of it
0: yeah well it's it's very very good because obviously James Patterson being one of the top sellers in the world and whatever people think of his writing you know the dude is obviously very successful (laughs) so I did his masterclass, and one of the things he talks about so he's a plotter you know and an outliner and does a lot of co-writing but what he does is when he every single thing he comes up with several different ways the character could go and that and and writes down those different things so he'll be like okay like you say a call a junction point you know that might be does does the character go this way and fight this person or go this way after this particular thing or and so it's fascinating to me that that kind of planning because I don't do that I'm a discovery writer and in my head there is only one line <laughs> and I've heard Lee Child say this actually it's like this is what happens and uh, if he's told to make changes to his book he's like no that's what happens there's only one way it happened and that's the way and it's so interesting to me because what you're talking about is this you have to write the 10 different options and then the character gets to choose which way to go so I guess my uh, question here for you would be so how do we come up with 10 or even three different options for each of these um, decision points like what are some of the tricks you use to to come up with them?
1: Well, what I I do tend to do, let's say, again, it depends on the sort of game you're working on. But let's say, so I worked on a a game called uh, Guardian Maya, which is a a sort of dark fantasy, interactive fiction game that you play on a mobile device with a wahine, a, a, a woman, she's a warrior, Maori warrior, and you help her basically go through the story. But there are lot of choices in that you can make for Maya that will then alter the story and so the trick is always working out scope like scope being how big do you want the story to be and how much writing do you actually want to do and how much writing can the production team afford to pay you to do so at each decision point what you do is you work out okay uh is this decision going to be a massive decision that's going to change the world? If so, then I need to think about how is it going to change the world and then start to think about how much of that I'm going to show the player. But then you've got at the other end of the scale if you want there to be decisions but not to be earth shattering to completely change the world and therefore um, require a lot more writing, you can start to play around with tweaks and behavior and tweaks and reactions from the world. So for instance, uh, in Guardian Maya we had a thing called a mana counter. So mana being the Maori concept of I guess uh, self-esteem plus the esteem gained from others of so uh, respect. So if you chose to interact with the characters in the story in generally positive ways, you tended to build mana and then what I would write in, is reactions from the other characters based on what Maya's mana score is, was at that time. So if it was high, they would treat her quite respectfully. If it was low, they might treat her with suspicion. They might be wary of her. They might be a little bit sarcastic with her. And I could do that with single lines that would change depending on what that, that mana score was. And I, I did all of that in a, in a tool called InkScript, Uh, which to me is my favorite narrative design tool because it still feels like writing when I'm making things like that. So, yeah, I guess that's one trick is always thinking about how big an effect do I want this option to have? And then thinking about the scope of the story as a whole. Like, if I make this change, is it going to be massive? Is it going to require a lot of writing or can I make small tweaks that still have the world reacting to the player but not necessarily um, having to write millions and millions of options call them
0: Mm. I know that that is interesting like a a scale of how big the the change is because of course if you go this way and you kill off a character that makes a big difference (laughs) to to the rest of things (laughs) and I've definitely written myself into issues where I'm like yeah this character dies now and then I'm like oh Uh, now what do I do?
1: (laughs) I've done exactly the same thing in my novels because I'm also a discovery writer when I when I do novels and I think it's because yeah because I like to take a holiday from all the heavy planning I have to do with narrative design but but what's also quite cool is when I'm being a discovery writer I feel like I'm also I can put myself in the player's position because Again, as a narrative designer, you're thinking about what do you want the player to discover? And it's the discovery that's enjoyable for the player a lot of the time. Like, what's next? What am I going to experience next? So, like, one tip might be, say, if you're a novelist who wants to describe um, actually what sprung to mind, I listened to your episode about pseudo uh, pseudo-write and about describing a laboratory. So what you can do is you can... As a novelist, you can write out, you can describe that whole laboratory. Now, when the char- when your character interacts with that laboratory, let's say there's a there's a fight in there, and you need to know things like, well, what beaker is the hero going to smash over the villain's head? That kind of thing, or what elements of the room are you going to use? And you can just write that through. But if you basically describe the entire laboratory, what you're doing is you are then setting it up so a player can explore all the elements of that laboratory without you having to kind of guide them towards any sequence of how they do it or try and draw their attention to any parts. So it's that same sort of process when you go in and you've got a setting, you describe the whole thing. And then of course there's constraints when you're working with an art team or production budgets, like how much they can actually make. But Mm. as a principle, that's a good way to approach it. Describe the whole environment so that then the, player has the option of discovering what they want to discover in that room, rather than specifically what you might want them to discover, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to when you're writing. I feel like when we write a book, we're often a lot of the time we are just writing for us. Uh, but with a game, obviously, it's a business from day one. It's a company that you're I know you have some independent game companies and things, but people are thinking of the gamer, the, the person who's experiencing the game from the beginning. So you, you almost have to keep that mindset. So it's interesting that you're a discovery writer with your own novels. So, but what else have you learned or what tips do you have for authors that you've learned from gaming that you put into your novels?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. Of, it's sort of mulling that over, lately. It's if I actually bring up this kind of experience design principle again, and it's it's something that I would like to employ more when when I'm actually writing a novel, and I'm going to on this next novel. I'm I'm just starting work work on. We are again, yeah. You're thinking about the player, or in this case, the reader, and you're plotting out. Not, not the actual plot, not the actual you know, storyline, but what emotional experiences you want the reader to have as they consume your story. So it's almost, again, like thinking of am like a player, like what route, if they go into this room, what things do I want them to be able to interact with in their own time and, and enjoy and get a fright from potentially, that kind of thing. The same thing when approaching a novel. If you are writing a scene, is thinking about what is the key emotion that you want to evoke with the scene? Is it anxiety? Is it excitement? Is it a sense of fun? You know, whatever the style of story you're writing, whatever it pertains to um, it's thinking kind of like, yeah, experience first. What do you want the reader to emotionally experience from that scene and then work up from that as a, as opposed to maybe the approach of what's next in the plot, like well, what do I, what part of the story do I want to deliver?
0: No, I think that's really important, and it, as you, it, this sort of idea of what you enjoy has to come into that too. So, for example, when you're talking about discovering what's in the lab, like for me, curiosity is a is a really big driver for why I read books and why I, I want to learn about things. So that's what I have in my books is interesting settings and interesting things that are actually in the real world, because I enjoy those things and my readers do. And that's not for everyone. So you do have to find the things that you want to do, and and then go ahead that way, which I, I think I... It, many readers or many writers even might shy away from, because they're worried about what they like, or they think X will sell better. <laughs> but what you're talking about there is, yeah, experience first, but it, it's definitely the experience for the reader and based on what you love, which I think is super important. Mm,
1: exactly. I mean, especially as I read of this next novel I'm going to delve into, which is uh, a horror Western. The reason I'm writing it is because I can't find enough good horror westerns out there to read. So I really am treating myself as the ideal reader. like. And so when I go into creative scene I'll be looking at what emotion do I want to evoke in that scene that I would enjoy. You know, Would I enjoy being frightened at this point? Would I enjoy being intrigued at that point? So again, it's a very different process for me when I am tackling my novels as opposed to when I'm working on games because yeah, it is much more of a, it's a business. You have to always keep the audience in mind because at the end of the day, that's the audience you're selling to. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if you've got your player profile, right, and you've tailored your game to that profile, then chances are it'll do well. If you not hit the player profile, then, you know, things get a sort of a little squiffier.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny that you're you're not writing like lit RPG, which to me would be obvious because you know this <laughs> world so much. But clearly, you you know the horror western. Like as soon as you said that, in my mind, I thought about Westworld, which I know is sci-fi, but it's sci-fi horror western.
1: <laughs> mm, I loved well, I love the first two seasons of Westworld. They're just amazing. Yeah, and, I and, I, uh, I only
0: watched the first two as well. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, good. Yeah, I, I wouldn't advise to try the third. <laughs> no, that,
0: that so there's definitely a niche there. But anyway, I, I did want to ask you coming back on this software, InkScript, and mm-hmm. also the fact that you don't sound like you're a programmer. So, if someone listening wants to get into writing for games, how would they go about that? And uh, is this software, InkScript, something that's important?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, InkScript's a great place to start because it's open source for a start. So, the company that created it, Inkle, they have been doing interactive fictions for a long time now. They do really sophisticated, fancy ones. Uh, 80 Days is a great, it's a mobile game where you, uh, is it Phileas, Phineas, Fog, and Pass Two, and you basically have to get around the world in 80 Days, but it's in a slightly alternative, steampunky version of the world. It, and it's all done in text, interactive text. And Inkscript is what runs underneath so I would say as far as writing tools go it's an accessible one because like I said it still feels like writing especially if you're a discovery writer I think that's important to still have that sense of hey I'm actually as I'm creating this game I'm still writing this game There are other tools for those who are more more of a planner type writer say Articy Draft is a really good one uh, which allows you to while well, you putting out in a really visual style and also allows you to do all of your different branches about how the story might go this way if the player makes choice A or this way if choice player makes choice B and C and so on, you can do it all visually in a nice big kind of map. And they also have cool tools in there like you can even create literal maps uh, of your world and then tie your story to the world so you can see how the player might be exploring the physical, like the, the landscape at the same time as they're exploring the story. It's got lots of cool features to it, but it really, again, depends what sort of writer you are uh, and how you approach story. But as far as like the kind of the getting into, into the industry side, I think there, there, is, there are two very distinct roles. There's game writing and then there's narrative design. So as I mentioned, the, the narrative design is more of the experience design behind the scenes kind of stuff, uh, whereas game writing is the literal writing of um, dialogue, flavor text. So flavor text is the text that often comes on small items that you pick up on the game or other bits and pieces in the game, like if there's collectibles in the game, it might have little pieces of poetry on it and so on. Uh, there's barks, which is another thing. Uh, so there's all the sort of game development terminology, which takes a while to, to get your head around. But all the things that the, the characters will say as you're moving through the world. So, for instance, in Witcher 3, uh, you are Geralt of Rivia and you ride your horse through all of these villages and all the villages have things to say to you. Uh, those are called barks. So, and you can imagine, that's uh, uh, that world is so big and so populated with NPCs, non-player characters. You can imagine how many lines of dialogue one would have to write and Bach. So, there is a demand for, for writers to just get in and write a lot of stuff. So, mm. if if you've got, especially if you've got a background in poetry or short story. Uh, and also, you know, script writing. And I would say, especially for theatre, because you already understand that kind of, that close relationship between story and audience from theatre, then that's a good place to start, is freelancing, writing dialogue, flavour text, cut scenes, which are when the game stops and basically plays you a mini movie. That's mm. that's often a good starting point for screenplay writers. In fact, for anybody from the movie industry wanting to come in, they'll often start writing cutscenes. So yeah, so there are a lot of different elements to games that you can start on without any technical skill whatsoever. However, if you want a bit more control over your work and you want to be a bit more involved in the development process and kind of be the champion of story and the development of process, then it does pay to have some technical skills. And that's one of the reasons I learned Inkscript which does involve things like wrangling variables and states and kind of programming stuff. And I've also started learning how to use unity 3d, which is a a game engine and has a scripting language called C sharp. Although that's, it's, that's been quite a steep learning curve for me, but I think if you were to want to future proof yourself in the games industry as a writer and narrative designer, I think, Having the at least the willingness to learn the more technical tools would would be really really helpful.
0: It's interesting. This future future proofing is something that I think about a lot, obviously, and I talk about on this show. And one of the things that I hear talked about a lot at the moment is the spatial web, which is this kind of future. Well, I say future. It looks like the first. Headsets. I mean, obviously, at the moment there are gaming headsets, you know, Oculus and stuff like that. But if Apple comes out with their VR, AR glasses or whatever we, uh, whatever they're going to come out with, we could see this sort of spatial web, 3D world moving into more of the mainstream. And it feels like that suits gamers completely. And what I've heard people talk about in this new Web three or whatever people are calling it is experience and you said experience first like you're designing experiences and that's the way we need to think so where do you see gaming going with the rise of essentially putting a screen on your face and I mean we had Pokemon Go a few years ago but I'm certainly very interested in how these experiences could work so where do you see this stuff going? Well it's it's
1: Interesting that the spatial web space, especially virtual reality and, and augmented reality, have been a lot slower to take the main stage of the games industry than a lot of people have thought. And it has been because the technology hasn't been uh, ready, like a lot of people steer away from VR because they get motion sick when they try and use it. I've not experienced that myself. I've actually found are extremely immersive but it's also interesting as soon as you place uh, someone in a virtual environment like that the the intensity levels I think go up so it actually becomes hard work to be in there because you're suddenly your brain is just processing like crazy with this new world that you've just been dropped into it means that I think play sessions for virtual reality tend to be a lot shorter because um, the player just gets tired more quickly, much more tiring than say reading a book or even playing a mobile game uh, or even playing a console game. So it's been this kind of, what would I call it the cognitive load on the player has been a real challenge with virtual reality. However, I think as I've just seen, for instance, Unreal Engine, I believe 6 has just, I don't know if they've released it or it's on its way. And I've seen, so Unreal is, I guess, the go-to engine for creating virtual reality. Uh, And it, it enables you to create super realistic environments relatively easy using a lot of AI rendering tech behind the scenes. And I think as virtual reality gets closer to reality, I think that will ease that cognitive load on the player and make it easier to actually be in that space. Because at the moment, literally, you are throwing a person into a completely alien environment. Even, Even if it looks kind of like the real world, your brain is also processing the fact that it's not at the same time. So I think that's an interesting challenge for VR to overcome. Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot
0: of that, I mean, just coming back on the motion sickness, I feel like that was some of the earlier iterations, whereas with some of the stuff they're, they're doing now, that's kind of moved on. But it's also interesting, you mentioned Unreal Engine, I heard the CEO talk about the that these aren't just virtual worlds for gaming, or that they might have started out as gaming. But like Roblox, for example, there are virtual concerts in these spaces. And these may be the type of spaces where we go to do our work for example or have these types of conversations so that they the the worlds that were originally being built for i say just games in inverted commerce may also be platforms for other forms of i guess commerce and relaxation for example
1: mm, yeah absolutely there's an anecdote that
0: just popped in mind uh about company.
1: So they were having staff meetings in one of the online games. It might have been World of Warcraft or one of those. So they were already starting to use virtual environments as conference rooms so that people could, you know, dress up as their favorite avatar and hang out in a familiar, comfortable space to them and while they're working. So yeah, I think that is that side of things is also heading into some really interesting Spaces and particularly, I think the more that virtual technology can, I guess, create spaces that that people can join together and inhabit together, and they're comfortable. That again, it's future proofing against things like COVID, uh, where if your office gets shut down because of a pandemic, then you've already got systems in place where you can hang out with people, communicate freely from the comfort of your own home. So I think there's a, yeah, there's a lot of potential in that space. The AR side of things is also interesting because again, yeah, I think it's been slow to take off because you've had this phone in your way. Like, so when even say games like Pokemon Go, you're going into an environment and you're using your phone to look through the phone to find the Pokemon but you still have this barrier of a device and a screen in front of you. I think yes, once once the glasses wear becomes, I guess, a lot more comfortable, easy to use, and you can kind of ignore it, the better those experiences are become. They are going to become so that reality truly does feel like it's augmented you've got added bits that you want to be there but you're not feeling like you're missing out on the world because you're holding up a screen still in front of your face at least at least that's that's how I feel about it
0: yeah me too and I personally I feel more attracted to the AR the augmented reality side of things with and you know we all wear glasses at different times either for seeing or for you know sunglasses or whatever so I feel mm. like that is a going to be more natural and also we look down at our phones too much and if the screen is the world uh, in front of you then it, it, I think that's really interesting but I I guess for, for people listening like neither of us are experts on all this and what you know this is uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's too futurist now. I think we're talking three to five years, as opposed to 10 to 20 years. I mean, especially if Apple come out with a device like they did in 2007, the launch of the iPhone, within a couple of years, the whole mobile economy changed, new app mm. store and all this kind of thing. So I guess my encouragement with this and talking about gaming is there's there's loads of different writing work and there's loads of different ways of telling stories when you can license as well I feel like there's a lot of licensing possibilities into into gaming so yeah to me this is a real positive move it just brings more opportunity for writers because all these people want writers right (laughs) Mm,
1: oh absolutely and that and that's the thing there's a remarkable amount of writing that needs to be done still in so many of these games and the larger the game the, the more writing is required so and I think also the licensing is really interesting because if you look at, again, a very description-rich novel, can be more easily translated into a virtual environment or an AR environment because all the elements have, are being described and the experience is being described. So it makes it easier for a development team to kind of take that and then turn it into a visual, uh, interactable environment. So I think there's, there's scope yeah A, for writers to have their work uh, gamified as it were, but there's also yeah the, these projects are so projects are so big and involve so many millions of words that yeah there's plenty of work going.
0: Yeah, and of course, you, you mentioned AI uh, rendering, which like Unreal Engine. And uh, I feel like in gaming, AI voices have already, uh, you know, already happened. They don't necessarily have actors doing all the voices of the characters now. There are lots of different AI-generated voices in gaming. So they're kind of ahead of, of that. But how else are you seeing AI being used now and moving forward? How much will you have to work with these tools? I don't believe they're going to replace humans, obviously, but I do think we <laughs> all have to work with AI.
1: Absolutely. And and I think, yes, in the games industry, we're we're working with AI all the time and and have been for a while. For instance, if you look at, uh, say, a fantasy game uh, where you are exploring a fantasy world and let's say you are involved in combat quite a bit, you know, battling goblins and orcs and slaying dragons and that kind of classic fantasy stereotypical stuff, then those enemies have always had a certain level of AI behind them. Now it could be really simple stuff as in, um, for instance, it's it's relatively simple to go into Unity and then program what's called a patrol loop. So that would be giving, let's say you have a werewolf and you want them to patrol a certain part of the forest, you can set them going on that and they will do that. And then you can set some parameters parameters to, to say how far can the werewolf see, how far can the werewolf hear, how far can it smell. And the player, as the player comes in, then you can trigger certain responses from the werewolf based on whether they've smelled them, heard them, or seen them. And that's gotten quite advanced. So in games like uh, Dead Cells, for instance, where, it's all centered around battling these massive hideous creatures. The behaviors for those creatures respond to what you do. And if you can kind of think about that, like there's AI and all sorts of elements in games now that are reacting to the player's actions. So yeah, so this stuff is already happening. For instance, like specifically to the say indie publishing scene, like what I've been playing around with is a, a website and system called replica i don't know have you heard of that one joanna
0: yeah 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 i have yeah is it it's Mm. replica.ai i think
1: yeah i think so yeah and so i've had a play around with some of their voices and some of them are just fantastic their ability to render quite natural sounding speech very quickly i think it is is a really interesting place like Again, I don't think it's going to replace voice actors anytime soon, but it's not a bad kind of second best as far as the enjoyability of listening. And it does require a different type of writing, though, because you almost have to iterate with the AI. So you'll write your paragraph, it will say it back to you, and it will invariably get some words wrong, and you almost have to start to alter your spelling and almost spell things wrong to get the AI voice to actually say it properly. I don't know if you've had that experience with some of your work with AI voice.
0: Yeah. And it's really funny because even AI itself, like the letter A followed by the letter I, I actually had to spell that out (laughs) as like a Y dash E Y E or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I almost want to ask like, yeah, whoa, who's programming who here, robot?
0: Yeah. (laughs) But that, but (laughs) this is, Exactly the point. Iterating with an AI tool, w- learning to work with AI tools. That's exactly what I think are future is it's yeah. working with these tools to achieve more than we could do uh, alone and uh, yeah i think this is super exciting but we could talk about this all day i do have one more question <laughs> for you before we go which is you have a family you have a you know a day job you're a busy guy and i have heard from many writers that they either have to give up gaming as enjoyment because it takes too much time mm-hmm. and also people who feel guilty about their Gaming time, for example, if they have kids and they're like, "Oh, worried about this, that, and the other." So I wondered, how do you manage your time with gaming, given that it's your job and also fun and also presumably inspiration?
1: <laughs> well, it, it is interesting. Uh, I mean, one thing that happens whenever you make a job out of uh, something, I guess the enjoyment can unfortunately come off the thing that that you're working with every day. But if so, I guess my time. It's almost like the time I spend helping to make games um, has colonized some of my time that I used to spend playing games, and that's just a, that's just an occupational habit, habit of working in the games industry. So I guess that would be one advice, piece of advice I would have to writers uh, looking at the games industry. So if you really, really, really love games, just beware that if you make it your job you may not love games quite as much as you used to <laughs> <laughs> but that that's it i do still play games with regards to with family what i tend to do uh, especially my youngest is is quite the gamer i've spent many hours of roblox time with her uh, especially online and so we we have tended to go on roblox adventures together so playing games with your kids is is a great thing and i Two, what I'll tend to do is, if I am researching a game and it is, you know, uh, head friendly So, since my eldest is now 15, the middle one's 13, the youngest is nine. So, depending on what game I'm playing, I may share that with them, and we can again experience that game together, and they can let me know what they think about it. And it's often really nice to get a totally different perspective. with so three girls. They have a very they bring a very different perspective to the games that I'm playing that that I might have. So it's definitely it's, it's a cool collaborative thing to do. And I guess the other thing too is I no longer tackle massive games that I know will take a hundred hours to even just scratch the surface of. I actively look for games that are in the two-hour to at most 20-hour mark. And even then that's getting a bit much these days. But I guess then, if I think about it, it's like, well, actually, a twenty-hour game. What's that? Is that even two seasons of Peaky Blinders? I don't think it is. <laughs> so it's often not as much as you would think. So I would, I would, I guess, hasten to uh, assure people that you no, know, um, gaming, you know, can be. be a very uh, managed and sustainable part of your life i heard uh, that jane mcgonigal she does a lot of research into Mm. the positive effects of video games and she said 23 hours per week is the cutoff point up until that point and this was done with high school students up until that point gaming seemed to actually improve their performance at school after 23 hours per week then there was a definite drop off so it's all about healthy gaming just as you, you talk quite a bit about healthy writing. Uh, I would I would suggest healthy gaming. Uh, be careful about the games you, you pick to play, and, and just just manage your time that way, and play with others as much as as possible.
0: Yeah, and I mean, really, it can be a lot more active than, say, watching just back to back TV—you know, hours of box sets—and you know, Jane McGonigal is a great example. I'll definitely link to, to her. She's got a couple of books uh, as well on on gaming, and I think the the other message is there's a lot more out there than you think and there's educational stuff and so that there's lots and lots of variability as you mentioned at the beginning so I think this is a very exciting space so thank you so much where can people find you and your book and everything you do online
1: uh well everything is on my website which is um www.edmcrae.com that's edmcrae Uh, and for tracking down my books I publish wide I followed your advice Joanna and myself Rachel she handles all the publishing side of our of our small press so the books are available pretty much everywhere and uh, specifically on the website is just the uh, www.edmcrae.com slash books and that's where everything is
0: fantastic well thanks so much for your time Edwin that was great
1: Thanks. that has been awesome, Joanna. Thank you.
0: So I hope you found the interview with Edwin interesting, regardless of whether you are a gamer or not. As we move into what some people are calling the experience economy, there will be many more opportunities for writers and creators, which, as ever, you know, I find very exciting. So next week, we are back into the author mindset as I talk to Becca Syme about questioning the premise and how we can consider our strengths as writers. I have found Becca's quit books, which I've been reading, there's I think five of them, uh, are really useful. And we have a pretty personal conversation that I think you'll enjoy listening into. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today.